Welcome to the Hope Collective Message Podcast, where we find a confident expectation of a better tomorrow in the character and promises of God. To learn more about who we are, visit thehopeco.com. Here's today's message. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the Hope Collective, and you are jumping in with us in week two of a message series that we are in called Pull Up a Chair. And really, this is um, almost like a checkpoint, a midway checkpoint of this campaign that we've been in over the past 12 months, this generosity initiative called Give Hope, where we're focusing on this idea of what does it look like for us to build bigger tables as a church, as communities, as families, where people that we know and people we've just met can come together to experience the hope of Jesus that we've found and we now have the opportunity to share with others. And so we've called this series Pull Up a Chair because this is really the invitation at this point is to pull up a chair and hear stories about what God is doing and how we can get more involved with what's happening. So over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing more stories like Ben and Kara's, like stories uh, from our youth this past week and the generosity that they've shown, more stories about all that as we talk about what does it look like for us to go into this next part of this giving initiative. And uh, I want to specifically make an invitation to those of you who are newer to the Hope Collective within the past 12 months, where maybe you've heard us talk about this Give Hope thing, and you're like, I kind of hear about it, but I'm not really sure what's going on. We want to give a special invitation for you guys to join us for what's called Hope is Happening. This is an event on April 28th. It's a Friday night. It's going to be right here at the church where you're going to have the chance to come and hear the heartbeat and the vision behind this Give Hope initiative, the things that God has done so far and the things that he's still wanting to do, we believe, in and through the Hope Collective and how you can get involved. So we would love to have you join us for that. We would ask that you would register just so we can know that you're coming. Again, this is going to be Friday, uh, April 28th in the evening there. You can register by going to our events page on the website, or you can check out the QR code uh, behind me. But we would love to see you there for that. And for everybody in this room, when you came in today, you were offered the opportunity to grab one of these series booklets. Now, we don't do this for all of our series, so I want to call attention to this. Because about halfway through this book is an entire note section that you can have for the four weeks that we're going to be in these series with the scripture reference that we're in, reflection questions for individuals, group discussion questions as well. That's going to be on the back half of this guide, but also on the front end is kind of a recap of where God has taken us so far, what we set out to do, and what we believe God is inviting us into next. So there's this whole section on our primary and secondary goals, what it means that this campaign is a one-fund campaign, a whole list, bullet points of just some of the things that God has been doing through the Hope Collective and the Hope Center and M68 all over the world, things that he's done, and then what we believe God still wants to do in and through this campaign and how we can say yes to his invitation. In two weeks, May 7th, we're going to make an invitation to everybody who calls the Hope Collective home to respond in one of three ways. So if you're newer to the church, you're new to this Give Hope idea, and you haven't made a commitment yet, we're going to invite you to follow God's prompting, and if he would have you make a first-time pledge to the Give Hope campaign. If you've already made a commitment to Give Hope, we're going to invite you to do one of two things. The first is to say, you know what? I made this commitment 12 months ago, and I'm committed to finishing that pledge strong. I'm going to make sure that I fulfill what I believe God has asked me to do. Or 
If God has given you an increase in faith or an increase in the capacity to give, we're going to ask you to follow God's lead if he's asking you to raise your pledge level and your commitment. One of those three ways that we're going to ask you to respond on Sunday, May 7th, our Pledge Sunday, to jump in, to finish strong, or to increase your pledge. And then two weeks after that, on May 21st, we're going to have a celebration Sunday where we share our final pledge amount, and then we also bring our first gifts and our offerings towards those new commitments. So that's what's coming up over the next few weeks as we're in this Pull Up a Chair series and moving into what we believe God has in store for us. We talk about this idea of pull up a chair, and we're spending these four weeks in the same set of five verses. Four weeks in five verses of scripture. Some of you are like, how are we going to do this? And we're like, we don't know. We'll find out. But we're having this conversation about what does Jesus's invitation to pull up a chair mean to the four different groups of people that are present in these five verses that we have in Matthew 9, 9 to 13? What did Jesus' invitation to pull up a chair mean to his disciples? the ones who had already been with him so far. Last week, we got to hear from our lead pastor, Dave, about what that invitation meant, how it was both an invitation into a deeper relationship with Jesus, and it was a challenge to go even deeper into the mission that he had in store for him and all of his disciples. Today, we get to talk about what Jesus' invitation to pull up a chair would have meant to the only individual that we meet in this story, man named Matthew. And we're going to see what that invitation meant to Matthew and how he responded with humility, allegiance, and generosity. But in order for us to understand how Matthew responded, we have to understand a little bit more about what's going on in this bunch of verses. So what we're going to do is we're going to read these five verses together, and then we're going to kind of pop the hood, and we're going to talk about the context and the background and what's going on in these five verses before we talk about how Matthew responded with humility allegiance, and generosity. But before we read these verses together, um, some of you know, 8 o'clock every morning, we have a time of prayer and communion that we celebrate together uh, with our elders and those who are coming to pray for the services that happen today. And in praying for the service, this doesn't happen a ton for me, but I sense this image come to mind of how some of us come into this space and it's almost like we're carrying minds and hearts that are just chock full of stuff. And whether that's fears or concerns or cares or what ifs, and some of them are valid and some of them aren't always, but we come into this space and our minds and our hearts are already so full that it's almost as if we expect God to just come in and try to cram something else into our already busy minds and hearts. But what God is doing is he's more interested in taking out the things that we've filled our minds and our hearts with, the things that we were never meant to carry, because he has something much better for us to place into our lives if we're willing to create the room and the space just to allow him that opportunity. So before we go any farther in this service, I want to take an opportunity to pray before we hear from God's word and go into the rest of this message. Can we do that together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who not only calls himself faithful and good and generous, but you have proven it time and time and time again through scripture and in each and every one of our lives. And so as we come into this space, we know that we carry things that we were never designed to carry and never meant to. And so we come and we say, God, we're sorry for trying to take up these things that never belonged to us in the first place 
and we cast our burdens and our cares and our anxieties before you because we know you care for us. You have an easy yoke and a light burden. And we ask, God, that you would clear the things out of our lives right now that need to be cleared so that we can have the space and the room in our minds and our hearts to receive everything you have in store for us. We love you, and we know that you love us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me if you're able as we read God's word today? We stand in these moments because we believe as we hear these words from Scripture, these are words inspired by the Holy Spirit for them back then and for us today. And so we read because these are the most important words that we will hear all day. Matthew 9, 9 to 13 says this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Love that phrase, by the way. (laughs) But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? And when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So what would Jesus' invitation to pull up a chair have meant to this man that we meet in Matthew 9, 9 to 13, named Matthew, a tax collector by all accounts? And how did Matthew respond? Matthew responded to Jesus' invitation with humility, allegiance, and generosity. But before we see that, we have to learn what's going on in this passage. What's happening behind the scenes? Where did this story take place? Who are the people that are at this table? And why does it all matter in the first place? So as we read scripture, we see that this story in Matthew 9, 9 to 13, takes place in a city called Capernaum. And Capernaum was located, if the Sea of Galilee is kind of like an oval, Capernaum was located right at the top, right along the Sea of Galilee. It was located between two major trade regions in the area. Not only that, but it was located along a major trade route that ran from Damascus in Syria in the north through Capernaum, down through Samaria and Judea, all the way down to Egypt. Major trade route in the area. So what, by all accounts, would have been a small fishing village of Capernaum because of its location on this trade route became this major hub of commerce in the area. And because the fishing industry there was also booming at the time, it became this large city, a city that was large enough to have its own synagogue, this sort of religious hub for the Jewish people. And not only that, but a city that was large enough to demand its own contingent of Roman soldiers. Soldiers that were sent by Rome to keep the peace through all of the different people that would be traveling in this uh, area of the world, but also to make sure that Rome got its share of all of the commerce that went through Capernaum. And so as much as you have the traders and the caravan owners, the soldiers and the Pharisees alongside the fishermen and commoners, there was an entire layer to the population of Capernaum that was made up of revenue officers, customs agents, and tax collectors. 
Tax collectors served as kind of the middle layer, the middlemen between the oppressive Roman Empire and the overtaxed Jewish people. And this was a custom that Rome had all over its empire, was to have this middle layer exist in every city that was there. But they would recruit the people who were these tax collectors from the native population of these towns. And so what happened was this layer of tax collectors in Capernaum society were Jewish men who had made the decision to become part of the Roman Empire that was oppressing their people. These are the faces of the people that you would have grown up with, who became the faces of the oppressive Roman Empire that was holding your entire people group down. Not only that, but this also would have been the face of the person who is personally responsible for you having a hard time feeding your family, for you being unable to pay your rent, a person who lived in luxury right across town while you were living hand-to-mouth. Because the way that the system was set up in the Roman Empire was that tax collectors had a very high level of authority and a very low level of accountability, which meant that not only could they take from you the taxes that Rome wanted, but they could take anything else that they wanted from you and pocket it at the end of the week. Because of their interactions with the Roman Empire, these tax collectors would have been some of the most known and least liked people in the entire city because they had betrayed your people. They were personally oppressing you. And not only that, to turn away from the Jewish people was to turn away from God himself and to make themselves ceremonially unclean because of their interactions with their Gentile counterparts in the Roman Empire. There was nothing about tax collectors that put them in good standing with anyone in Capernaum except for the Roman leaders themselves, who still would have looked down on them for betraying their countrymen. And this is Matthew. And so in the context of this passage, we have the city of Capernaum made up of crooks and commoners, soldiers and religious leaders, fishermen and Pharisees, all living in this one city. And this was where Jesus chose to set up shop. We're told in Luke 4 that after he is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus makes his way to the city of Capernaum, a little bit north, and this becomes kind of his home base for the region of Galilee. And as he's there, we're told that he frequently taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. That's Luke 4, 31. This is where he called his first four disciples in Mark 1, 16 to 21, disciples who were formerly fishermen. This is where he heals the paralyzed servant of a Roman centurion from the garrison in Capernaum. This is Matthew 8, 5 to 13. And this is also where Jesus healed the man lowered through the roof by his friends in Mark 2, 1 to 12. When we read these five verses in Matthew 9, 9 to 13, all of this context is in the background and helps us understand what Jesus' invitation to Matthew would have actually meant and how he responded. In Matthew 9, 9, the two words of the invitation that Jesus gives, just two words to Matthew, is follow me. And with the translation that we read this morning, they fill out a little bit more of what that would have meant. They filled in the significance because the invitation that Jesus had for Matthew within the translation we read is follow me and be my disciple. Jesus was not just inviting Matthew for a walk. This was the invitation of a rabbi saying, come and be my disciple. Come and be my life student. Learn how to live your entire existence by following my example. 
And this invitation from rabbis to those who would be their disciples were usually reserved for the best and brightest of the Jewish boys that would have grown up in the synagogue system. These are good Jewish boys from good Jewish families with good Jewish prospects, and this did not apply to Matthew at all. And so for Jesus to seek out one of the most despised people in the entire city of Capernaum with a life-changing invitation to become his disciple, to pull up a chair to the table that he was setting for the kingdom of God that was at hand, Matthew says yes, with zero hesitation. No recorded hesitation for Matthew as he responds to this invitation from Jesus. But why? And here's the thing. We're not told why. We're not told what it was about Jesus that made Matthew say, yes, I'm gone from this tax collector's booth. We are doing this. We're not told why. But we can figure out a little bit about what was going on in Matthew's heart as he responded to this invitation. First, we can tell that Matthew's response to Jesus was one of humility. Matthew would have been a pretty smart guy to be in the role that he was in, and he was smart enough to know where he stood with the Jewish people. He was an outcast. He was a pariah. He was one to be untouched, unfollowed, unfriended, canceled, and straight up avoided without even caring if he could tell if you were avoiding him or not. This is the guy who didn't get the invitations to the backyard cookouts or the synagogue picnics or the graduation parties or the plus one to any wedding season in Capernaum. For Jesus to invite Matthew to follow him when all that Matthew had ever known was rejection and that strange brand of community that exists when the only people you feel comfortable around are the people that nobody else feels comfortable around. For Jesus' invitation to come to this man would have changed everything for him. Because he had gone from being ostracized and disowned to invited and given a family. From being shunned by his people to being sought out by the savior of the world. And this invitation would have humbled Matthew. Because he never forgot who he was when Jesus called him. Here's what's interesting. So we have four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, they all have a record of the moment when Jesus said to the 12 people who would be his apostles, they all have a record of that moment and a list of those names of the men that he would call to be his disciples. All three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark and Luke, when they go through the list of people that Jesus called to be his apostles, these 12 men, they go ahead and they list everybody off. Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, the guys we never get to hear anything about, and then Matthew, right? You feel bad for these guys, right? Like, it's kind of a big deal, but like, okay, you were a follower of Jesus, that's probably enough. Um, So you have Matthew, who gets listed in Mark and Luke. Matthew, also called Levi, son of Alphaeus. Okay, great. They just named Matthew. That's it. But when Matthew, the tax collector, invited by Jesus, also the author of the gospel of Matthew, is given the opportunity to tell the story of the 12 men who were called to follow him, listen to what he says. This is Matthew 
chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Jesus called his 12 disciples together. He gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and heal every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also called Peter. Then Andrew, Peter's brother. James, son of Zebedee. John, James's brother. Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and Matthew, the tax collector. Decades after his encounter with Jesus in this story, when he goes back to write the account of what that moment was and who he was when Jesus found him, it's almost like Matthew hasn't gotten past the fact that he was one of the most despised people in his hometown when this preacher from Nazareth came and sought him out at his tax collector's booth and said, come and follow me. Matthew doesn't want us to miss the fact that this is who he was when Jesus followed him. Now, he's not that person anymore. He has become something entirely different, but he never was able to get too far in his imagination from who he was when Jesus came and called him. In humility, Matthew accepted Jesus' invitation and never forgot what it was like for someone like Jesus to call someone like him to be his disciple. He responded in humility, but that humility didn't stop with just inactive gratitude to what Jesus had done. It actually moved forward into allegiance. Humility from the call became allegiance to the one who called. Of all the people that Jesus encountered in his ministry, the thousands of individuals that he taught and healed and freed and fed, Matthew is one of the handful in Capernaum that actually committed to following Jesus. This commitment took the shape of a wholehearted allegiance to the person and work of the Son of God. In Matthew's version of events, again, in Matthew 9, 9, and 10, all that we're told is that when Jesus invited Matthew to follow him, Matthew got up and he followed him. It takes Luke, another gospel writer, to fill in some more of the story for us. The call of Matthew, also known as Levi in the Gospels, in Luke 5, 28, where Matthew, in Matthew 9, 9, says that Matthew got up and he followed him. At Jesus' call, Luke adds the small note here that Matthew didn't just get up and follow Jesus. He got up, left everything, and followed him. And those two words, left everything, are almost code words within the gospel story to signify repentance and a turning away from everything that was and turning towards everything that God has in store. Joel Green, a commentator on the book of Luke, says this, By saying that Levi has left everything, Luke is observing that Levi has not just responded to a nice invitation— he has repented of his old way of life, reorienting his existence completely around God's purpose as manifest in Jesus' mission. This is a big deal. Two reasons, at least. First, up to this point, Matthew has had little to no allegiance to God, as evidenced by the fact that he's working for the Roman Empire. He has turned away from the temple, from religion, from the Jewish people, and turned towards the Roman Empire. His allegiance is gone from all of that, even while he's getting a number of perks from the Roman Empire, like imperial protection and a little more money in the bank. Now, all of a sudden, Matthew's life is radically redirected, and he is forsaking the perks and protection of the Roman Empire to follow this backwater Jewish preacher from Nazareth who just so happens to be the king of the universe. Second reason this is a big deal is that of all the people in Capernaum, religious and irreligious alike, 
Matthew is one of the few who actually responds to Jesus' invitation with a wholehearted acceptance of who Jesus is. A few chapters after this call of Matthew, in Matthew eleven twenty, Jesus is teaching and begins to call out the people and the places that he's lived and visited and done miracles. Matthew eleven twenty says this, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles. Why? Because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. He goes on to specifically name Capernaum, this place where he would have spent years and hundreds of thousands of hours of his life caring and loving and giving and feeding and healing and saving and yet. You people of Capernaum, Jesus says, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles that I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, this place in the Old Testament that was representative of all of the sinfulness and godlessness of the world eventually destroyed by God, if the things that I had done for you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. But I tell you, even Sodom will be better off of the judgment than you are. After everything Jesus had done and said in the city of Capernaum, what he was met with was still a lukewarm appreciation instead of a wholehearted devotion. The same amount of time and energy that we might have as we watch a new show or start a new stream, and then all of a sudden when the season's over or something better comes along, we switch and forget where we had just been. People of Capernaum may have had an appreciation for the local celebrity speaker and miracle worker, but it stopped short of the allegiance of soul that Matthew showed when he said yes to Jesus' invitation. Applause and allegiance are not the same thing. Applause will eventually lead to apathy, but allegiance will always lead to action. Matthew stands out from the crowd as one who didn't settle for applause but gave Jesus his wholehearted allegiance because he remembered who he was to be called by someone like that into something like this. That allegiance, fueled by Matthew's humility, led to generosity. Humility, allegiance, generosity. In the rest of the passage that we have for us, Matthew 11 to 13, Matthew goes on to throw a dinner party for Jesus and his disciples and everyone else that he knew, which is surprising because in context of a rabbi calling someone to come to himself, someone who is unclean, living among unclean people, doing unclean things, what we might have expected from Matthew was to immediately cut ties with the people that he used to rub shoulders and rob his countrymen with. These were bad characters, negative influences, and maybe he did cut ties with some of them, but what gets recorded for us is not that Matthew cut ties with his disreputable network, but that he introduced them to the best person he had ever met. Matthew's first recorded act after following Jesus, and really the only substantive story that we have about Matthew in all four Gospels, is that he opened his home to Jesus his disciples, and everyone else that he knew so that they could meet this person who had changed Matthew's life. Scripture tells us that the guest list included other shady characters from Matthew's tax-collecting circles, most of whom had either been Matthew's partners in crime or people he had formerly collected taxes from. But Matthew didn't let the shame or the embarrassment of his former life and associations hinder him 
from throwing open the doors of his home to anyone and everyone who wanted this chance to meet the preacher from Nazareth. And as we look at this moment in Matthew's life, we might not automatically think of it as an opportunity where Matthew showed generosity. We think about generosity as maybe giving a large donation, funding a building project, something like that, selling everything he has and giving it to the poor. Generosity is simply using what you have to give others what they need. That's it. Using what you have to give others what they need. What did Matthew have when Jesus found him? He had some money in the bank, a decent-sized home, and a lot of co-workers who needed Jesus. So what did he do? He didn't immediately distance himself from the tax collectors and sinners that he associated with, which is what other rabbis might have required, but Jesus himself seems to be working against when he says, it's not healthy people that need the doctor. It's sick people. I didn't come from people who think and live like they are more righteous than everyone else. I came to the people who knew that they were sick and on the outside, sinners who were being rejected. Those are the folks that I came to be with. The first moment that we have in Matthew of his record is following in the footsteps of his rabbi Jesus. Matthew invites all of these crooks, sinners, and ill reputes, people who weren't considered polite company by society, and introduces them to the savior of the world. Because his buddies didn't need another fancy dinner party or another nice meal, but what they needed was an encounter with the Jesus who had radically changed Matthew's life. So he used what he had to give them what they needed. This is the example that Matthew leaves for us. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. When Jesus made this invitation to Matthew to come and follow him, to pull up a chair to the table of the kingdom of God that Jesus was setting, the kingdom that was at hand, the kingdom that would eventually be on earth as it is in heaven, when Matthew responded, he responded with humility to being called at all in the first place, with allegiance to the one who had called, and with a generosity that sought to use what he had to give others what they needed in the name of this one who had given him what he needed. But generosity does not start anywhere else for followers of Jesus than with an appreciation of the generosity we have been shown by God. Our generosity towards others is always a response to God's generosity towards us. Which is why any conversation about generosity starts with humility. The goodness of God that has met us in our need and what it means for someone like us to be called by someone like him. Our generosity must be grounded in humility and appreciation of the difference between who Jesus was and who I was when he called me. And I'm not that person anymore. Praise the Lord. I've become a new creation. There's something new that God is doing, but we still remember where we were in that moment when he picked us up out of the miry clay and set us on a rock, gave us a fresh start, a new life, and a new relationship with God. What's grounded in humility results in allegiance like we sing our affection, our devotion poured out on the feet of Jesus, the one who has no rival, the one who has no equal, who was and is and is to come, the savior of the world, God in the flesh, our king. Our allegiance belongs to him. Humility and allegiance that expresses itself in generosity, using what we have not to give us what we want, but using what we have to give others what they need, whatever that might be. 
Because if we receive the truth of scripture, then each and every one of us has been given something in some amount to be able to offer to the service of God for the good of others. And so we bring it to the table and say, God, will you use this to give others what they need because what you have so generously given me. And anytime we have conversations about generosity in the middle of a capital campaign, there's always some tension with it, right? Can we just call that out? Can we just name that? But here's the thing. We say all the time, and we will say it again, the strong agenda that we have for the life of every single person in this room, because we believe it is the agenda of God himself, is to help you become more like Jesus. And so when we talk about this capital campaign, we're excited about it. It's going to be awesome. We're really looking forward to what God is going to do in and through it, because we believe he's doing some cool stuff. But more important than the campaign is what God is doing in your heart that's going to lead you to become more like Jesus in who you are and what you do. The capital campaign is just an excuse to have more conversations about this. And if we can use this, okay, yes, all right. We want to use this as an opportunity to help you become more like Jesus, however God leads you to respond as you seek his face and what he is asking you to do in the future, whatever that might be. Hear that. But our generosity towards others is always a response to God's generosity towards us. And when Jesus invited Matthew to pull up a chair to his table, he responded with humility, allegiance, and generosity. So what we're going to do is I'm going to leave you guys with a few questions. And we're going to take some time just as a church to give you the opportunity to process those on your own or maybe with someone around you. I'm going to give us those questions and then pray for us, and we're just going to have a few moments as the band plays to just be able to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying and respond in whatever way he's leading us to respond. So invite the band forward. But here's these three questions that we're going to invite you to reflect on. A question about humility, a question about allegiance, and a question about generosity. First question is our humility question. Do you remember who you were when Jesus called you? Some of you have been following Jesus for a few months. Some of you have been following Jesus for decades. How far removed have you gotten from the person that you were? For me, 17-year-old Alex. Not that person anymore. Praise God. Haven't forgotten who that person was. Praise God. Because for someone like that to meet someone like that, may I never get over that. And the grace that God has shown me in picking that one, that 17-year-old kid, and making him something completely different. Do you remember who you were when Jesus found you? And are you still in awe of what that means? Our second question is an allegiance question. What might be taking your devotion away from Jesus? And this is not a question to condemn or judge. This is just to ask what else is there that might be getting in the way? Because when we choose to follow Jesus, we choose to follow him with all that we are aware of at the time. But we become so much more. We discover more about ourselves. And what are the things that might be pulling us in different directions that Jesus is gently saying, hey, those things are never going to give you what you need. 
Those things can never provide what they promise. I have abundant life for you. If you want to bring your allegiance back to me time and time and time again. What might be taking your devotion away from Jesus? And finally, how can you use what you have to give others what they need? Are you aware of the goodness that God has given to you? And have you considered what it means for you to use that, whatever it might be, in whatever amount, regardless of what else anybody else has and how much of it they have? That's not the point. The point is, what has God given you? And how can you use it to give others what they need? These three questions are going to stay up on the screens. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to take some time to sit in this moment with the music playing before the band leads us in an opportunity to respond in worship. Can we do that? Holy Spirit, we thank you that our God is not a God that is silent and far off, but a God who speaks and comes close. So as you spoke once in these five verses of scripture, we ask that you would speak again right now to each and every one of our hearts to remind us of who we were when you found us, to remind us of the abundant life that you offer to those whose allegiance is to you and the joy of generosity and the chance that you have given us to do good to others as you have done good to us. Holy Spirit, will you speak in these moments? May we have open hearts and open ears to listen well to what you would say. Amen. Thanks for spending time with the Hope Collective. If you appreciated this message, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast or share it with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review, which will help other listeners find us online. Thanks again for joining us.